Well, if you would, uh, please read along silently as I read aloud from verses 22 through 36. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness that he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Last week we talked about the joy of submitting to Jesus and seeing people turn to him. This was the life of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was not about the promotion of his own ministry. John's clothing and his diet were pretty sound evidence of the fact that John was not into the self-esteem movement. He was far more committed. He was passionately committed. I think it's safe to say he was singularly committed to the promotion of Jesus Christ for the sake of all who would believe in him. He deals with his disciples in a gracious but corrective manner when they had drawn attention to the fact that, as they said, all were going to the one across the Jordan to be baptized and the appearance being that they were leaving John's plan. John wasn't concerned about that at all. John had previously said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. He states that he wasn't worthy to do the most menial task that was even below the lowest slave to untie his sandal, which was the duty of a slave, but it was the duty of the lowest slave. Most slaves were above that task, yet the lowest of slaves were assigned the task of doing the dirtiest work. And John says, I'm not worthy to even do that John declared I'm not the Christ I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness 
He just was a voice. That's all he was concerned about being. He wasn't interested in any kind of promotion, any kind of title. He had no interest in anything related to something that might promote himself. Paul corrects the Corinthians with regard to their over-devotion to himself, in some folks, to Apollos, in others. He says, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building, an illustration used a number of times in Scripture that the body of Christ is an edifice. It is the growing result of the building efforts of Christ, that Christ would build his church, that the foundation is established through the work of ministers. Paul calls attention to the fact that there are those who would rather than resting upon that foundation and being faithfully and humbly and happily involved in the work of the building up of that building, they rather want to be the focus of attention. So, Paul says, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And all those meanderings of the heart that wrestle with, man, I should get more credit for what I've done, all of that, he says, will be burned up. But not that which is built on a foundation with gold, silver, precious stones. The wood, hay, and straw will be incinerated. It, it will be no more. All that work that some folks do with the wrong heart attitude, with the internal effort to draw attention to self and to be exalted. Paul says, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. If you're interested in being involved in the ministry, and I don't even mean just as a, a pastor but truly a servant in the church of Jesus Christ, then as long as you're subjecting yourself to other people, there's going to be an onslaught of efforts, speech, conduct, that's going to result in the refining work of the fire of real life. It's good. It's a good thing. We all need that. We all need to be tested to see what is legitimate and what isn't, what is truly built on the foundation of Jesus Christ and what is not. And so uh, John here uses this illustration, as I alluded to in my prayer earlier, uh, about which we can all come up with some sort of memory. All of us have either been to a wedding. We certainly know people who are married, if we ourselves are not if you're not married you know plenty of people who are and you know the condition of that marriage if you know anything about that family i don't mean that you know all the intimate details with regard to the interactions between the two people involved in that marriage but i do mean that that marriage is on display before you especially if you're involved in such an intimate engagement as the same local church all throughout the old testament 
The concept of marriage is used to illustrate God's relationship with Israel. And Israel, a number of times, is spoken of as a harlot, an adulteress that leaves the marriage. What is God's response? What is God doing? What is God's action? What is his attitude, if you will? It's one of faithfulness. It's faithfulness to himself, faithfulness to his decree, faithfulness to his covenants. That God would be true. John speaks of the person who believes in Jesus in our text as one who sets his seal to the fact that God is true. This is what we see in the married man who acknowledges that his wife is not perfect. He realizes she needs his help. It's incumbent upon him to be the man, to be the head, to be the direct representative of Jesus Christ in the marriage. He is to display the humility of Christ, the strength of Christ, the consistency of Christ, the faithfulness of Christ. The man who's constantly looking at his wife saying, well, I didn't do this because you did that. You know, this 50-50 worldly idea that, you know, so long as you're scratching my back, I'll keep scratching yours. It's ridiculously selfish, and it's utterly worldly, but it's extremely common. On the other hand, so many would say, no, 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 that's not right. In a Christian marriage, it's 100-100. I give 100%, and you give 100%. That's the same ratio. It's the exact same expectation. As long as you give this percentage, then I'll give that percentage. The math that Jesus displays in his devotion to the church is 100%, 0%. So the man who would display a legitimately Christ-like mindset in his marriage is the one who loves his wife as Christ loves the church, willing to be a rock, Willing to be consistent, willing to be repentant, willing to be humble. And what's the result? The result is that the woman who is in Christ, married to that humble man, loves to be led by that man. So both are sanctified over time. That's the picture that you see in the New Testament. Well, John understood his role to be similar to that of the modern-day best man. In Jewish culture, the best man or the friend of the bridegroom was the one who took care of all the details. He made sure that everything was covered. Go back to chapter 2 in John, and you see that some best man failed on some level because there wasn't enough wine for the party that wasn't even yet one day old, and they had a week to go. And as you recall, this was a major social disaster. And the Christ of compassion steps in and provides all that's necessary. Christ then providing an example of how Christ treats the church and calls men to be men who love their wives as Christ loves the church. Be sensitive, be compassionate. Recognize that there will be moments when you'll have to step in and provide what's necessary for things to go well. What we see now further in our text after last week having looked at the joy of submitting to Jesus and seeing people turn to
to him is the earthly lives and eternal destinies of those who obey Jesus and those who don't. So John, in his role as the friend to the bridegroom, found his pleasure in uniting the bride with the bridegroom. And last week I called you to do the same thing, not only to uh, respond to the obligation, the command to be a person who unites the bride with the bridegroom, a person who is evangelistically minded, but to find your joy in it, not only to find your joy in it, but for your joy to be completed in it. Isn't that the hope of your heart for those of you who have children? Not that your children would pray some prayer, but they would stand in this baptistry one day and communicate what Hannah communicated as a young girl. That through your efforts, your children would recognize what it means to be united to Jesus Christ. Not some sort of obligatory decision. Decisionism rooted in the false theology of Charles Finney, who sadly is heralded as a hero of the faith in many modern churches today. So very, very different from what you see in the earthly lives of those who obey Jesus Christ and have eternal life. Our text in verse 31 says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. You see, John refers here to the great contrast between himself and Jesus. Jesus is from above, and he is above all. John is from below and is therefore below the one who is above all. Jesus is from heaven. John is from the earth. You know we are told that we are to be in the world but not of the world. And so there's a sense in which when you think of the eternal decree that all of the sheep given to Christ will come unto him, we are not of the world but we are from the earth. We were born here. You have an eternal soul meaning eternity future. Christ, on the other hand, is eternal upon eternal. He is, not was, he is in eternity past. He has no point of creation. So he, being ultimately eternal, is above all. John is not. John was begat for the first time. He was born unto woman. The miracle of all this is in the incarnation, God took on flesh. Jesus was not created. God himself took on flesh. He is above all. And then John addresses the magnitude of the ingratitude of those who reject Jesus. He says about Jesus, He bears witness to what he has seen and heard Yet no one receives his testimony. For at least some period of time, everyone rejects the testimony of Jesus Christ. It's not unusual in our church for folks to come to us and say, you know, I've been deceived. I felt as though for most of my life, in fact, perhaps all of my life, I never really rejected the person of Christ. I thought I was a Christian. In my particular case, I thought I was born into Christianity. I thought I was a Christian my whole life, and it wasn't until I was 18 years old when someone challenged me and said, how long have you been a Christian? And I said, well, my whole life. You know, red flag goes up in his mind, right? And he starts praying for me and spending time with me and communicating the gospel to me and telling me about the depravity into which I was born, my sinful condition, eventually shares the gospel with me. 
Sadly, within a month, I was making a false profession of faith because another guy stepped in and said, well, what you do is you pray this prayer. And I was persuaded to believe that that kind of fixed things. But no, I was yet rejecting the testimony of Christ. I knew enough, I had heard enough, I had been exposed enough to the reality of the person and the work of Christ that in my willingness to cling to some sort of man-made fleshly prayer, I was unwilling to receive the testimony of Christ. The Jews largely rejected the message of Jesus with no turning back. You're aware that in John 8, they um, ultimately thrust upon him the question, Who are you? Interesting, isn't it? Because he's already told them. He's already explained that he is the Messiah, but they press him again, Who are you? And it's in John chapter 8 where you really see the synchronon of all texts related to Jesus' deity. And he says, I am. He declares that he is God. It's the text that befuddles the Jehovah's Witness and one that they really don't want to deal with but are doing an increasingly better job of dancing around and twisting to make it mean something that it doesn't. Jesus declared himself to be God. And if that's not enough for you when they visit your home next week or whenever, go to Hebrews 1.3 and Hebrews 1.8 where God the Father calls God the Son God. He is God. The text of Scripture tells us repeatedly that he is God. He is above all. And what is the response of the Jews? In John 8.58 when he says, Behold, before Abraham was, I am they declare him a blasphemer. And it's their intent to put his life to an end by killing him with stones, but he slips away. John 10, 29, Jesus says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Where John tells us, Jesus bears witness to what he has seen and heard. He speaks of the eternity past reality of Jesus' relationship with the Father. What he has seen and heard. He is God who lives with God. If you haven't listened to our message from that first section of John, listen to the intro and listen to the message from verses 1 through 5 where we deal with Jesus being God, being from God, but being God himself. It's clearly displayed there in that text, and yet there are those who want to fight against this. Jesus uh, himself speaks of this in verse 29 of John 10. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. That is an eternal reality, speaking of the existence of the Father and the Son as one in Eternity passed. Again, verse 31, John 10, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself to be God. So while... A number of pseudo-Christian cults today will tell you that Jesus was a good man, but he is not 
God, recognized that the Jews who were steeped in a sound theology proper regarding the character of God were convinced that, no, he actually was claiming to be God. It's hard to imagine how anyone with a New Testament would think that Jesus did not claim to be God. Certainly the Jews of his day knew it, but what did they do with that? They rejected his testimony. What an insult. What a cosmic offense against the kindness of God to put on flesh, to become a defenseless baby, to walk in the frailty and the fragility of manhood, and to do so with the intent to give his life for all who would repent of their sins and trust in him and trust in the atonement provided by his death, covering of sin, and then in his resurrection to prove and provide power over sin and over death. What an eternal insult. Verse 33 tells us, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Now think with me for a moment. Let's read it again. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. I want you for a moment to consider the history of your exposure to the modern concept of making Jesus Lord. You know, the man-made Arminian mindset that allows for a man, calls for a man to ultimately save himself with the assistance of Christ. And if you don't like describing it that way, that's fine. But my point is, think about the reality of it. In all those experiences where you've seen children manipulated, sensationalized, emotionalized, to walk an aisle and pray a prayer and get into the baptistry, not just children, but adults, time and time and time again. You know, some throughout their lives praying that same sinner's prayer, you know, some 30 or 40 times or more, hundreds perhaps. You know the result. Have they set their seal? To the fact that God is true? Well, no. There's no power over sin. There's this false sense of security in a fleshly decision. Well, I made the decision, therefore I'm good. Regardless of what my life looks like, you know, I don't really like it so much. Well, actually, I kind of do, but sometimes I don't. But, you know, God will forgive me. The presumptuous sin of the false convert who deliberately runs headlong into sin, saying, well, Christ's work on the cross is sufficient for all my sins. Paul insists in Romans 3 that that presumption proves false conversion. He's yet condemned, Paul says. In the ancient world, when a man would ratify his own letter or any document, he would pour a small amount of hot wax at the bottom of the document and depress his seal or his Mark, in a king's case, it was usually a signet ring, and either he did that or many times a servant would do that, an amanuensis would do that on his behalf. And so that mark, that seal, signified that it met his full approval and his full endorsement. So the one who legitimately receives the testimony of Jesus ratifies it with his life. That's his signet ring. That's his testimony of Christ's testimony. He sets his seal to the fact that God is true. 
His life and words testify to God and his word. That person is like John the Baptist. While he is from the earth and he is flawed, he strives to live a life that points to the one who is from heaven. He believes that God is true. He rests in the truth of God and he proclaims the truth of God. His life is about God. As I mentioned earlier, we are about to celebrate the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's nailing of his 95 theses to the door at Wittenberg. Now, that sounds dramatic. The fact is, it was a pretty common bulletin board where numerous people on frequent occasion would do something along those lines, but it was the content of the 95 theses that set the world afire. And Martin Luther was greatly flawed. The Lord used him because the Lord uses flawed men to deliver a flawless message so that depraved men would repent and believe in that message. And that the result would be that they would declare that God is true. That their life and their speech and their heart attitudes would display the fact that God is true. And how do we know God is true? From his word, not from tradition, not from the changing traditions that get passed down year after year and decade after decade that change as time goes on. But the ever true eternal reality that God's word is perfect, it's flawless, it is inerrant, it's infallible, it's all sufficient, it does not change, it is what it is in eternity past. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, 89, Your word, O Lord, is preserved forever in heaven. It's never changed. You say, but wait a minute. I mean, the scripture records historical narrative things coming to pass. How is it possible then that God's word has always been what it is? Well, it hasn't always been written in the form that we have it today. You certainly didn't have iPhones you know, 3,500 years ago, you didn't even have leather-bound books. The printing press enabled the development of a Bible that you could hold in your hand. The writing of it was the record of what was taking place in time, but all of it was decreed in eternity past. And so, God displays his kindness in showing to us that he is true. Much of it was prophecy, and the prophecies coming to pass proving that God is true. But the one who sets his seal to the fact that God is true is not only showing that his hope is in the word of God by reading it and even by memorizing it, but by living in such a way that shows he is committed to God. He received the testimony of Jesus. The one who does receive the testimony of Jesus is the one who loves his word. He sets his seal to it. He proves it. Verse 34 says, For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Now again, John's talking about Jesus here in contrast to himself. John obviously is not saying, I don't speak the word of God. He's saying that he utters the words of God as one who is sent by God. And so his utterance of the word of God is perfect. How? Why? What does this look like? 
He gives the Spirit without measure. This is an interesting theology that's really critical to you and I understanding how it is that we can follow the perfect example of our Savior. Isaiah 61 verse 1 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. While the Spirit of God was given to Old Testament prophets in some measure, the Spirit of God was given to the Son of God without measure. Of John the Baptist, it is foretold in Luke 1.14, And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. But while John, like all other Old Testament prophets, was tainted with sin, his power to represent the truth of God, the word of God, was tainted just as he was tainted. And there was never a flawless expression on John the Baptist's part of anything related to Christ, but it was a faithful expression. Christ, on the other hand, is given the spirit without measure. It's the same for you and me in our taint. When we walk by the Spirit, you know this, right? Have you ever felt as though if you got to the end of the day and said, you know what, man, I'm, I walked by the Spirit all day long and, and didn't sin, not once. No, you've never thought that, right? I hope you haven't thought that because it certainly never happened. But you have walked by the Spirit and you've walked away saying, wow, Father, thank you that you gave me the strength, the humility, the courage, the knowledge, the wisdom to walk by the Spirit. What does that mean? It simply means you're obeying the word of the Spirit as you have it in writing. That's all it means. You know, the Charismatics have wanted to make this mystical. There's nothing mystical about it. You're simply obeying the word of the Spirit. And you've never done that perfectly, nor have I, nor has anyone except Jesus the Father, which, by the way, makes him the only legitimate substitute for the wrath of God on our behalf. This is why God's wrath is appeased. God's wrath is satisfied. It's propitiated in Christ, because the fullness of the Spirit without measure was given to him. And so what he spoke was flawless, and how he lived was flawless. Do you know someone whose influence under the Holy Spirit is an uninterrupted mirror image reflection? No. We walk by the Spirit, and we endeavor to do so faithfully. But there is but one to whom the Holy Spirit is given without measure, so that his conduct and heart attitudes were never anything but legitimately and completely spirit-filled. All the fullness of deity dwells in him. Right? All the fullness of deity dwells in him, Colossians 2.9. Well, verse 35 goes on to tell us, the Father loves the Son, and has given all things into his hand. We talked about this a number of weeks back. That the love that exists between the Father and the Son is a perfect, uninterrupted love. There's never a point at which one needs to look at the other and say, you know, please forgive me for what I said yesterday. There will never be that, because it is a legitimate, uninterrupted love that never necessitates any kind of backtracking. It's flawless. 
Jesus' love from the Father is spoken of here as that which results in the Father giving all things into his hand. Fast forward to chapter 5, verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Why would he need to do that? Because in the incarnation, Jesus chose not only subordination to the Father, subjecting himself to a lower place than the Father, but he also momentarily, temporarily limited his omniscience. There's a debate over this, and I'm on the side that I think would agree with what we see here. There's a time during which Jesus' omniscience is intentionally, deliberately, and strategically limited. Even to this day, Jesus knows not when he will return. Only the Father knows that. Now, I don't understand, nor does anyone understand, the limit or the extent to which this limitation of his omniscience has taken place. At times we see his omniscience. We see him reading people's minds. We see him knowing things that, as far as we know, he didn't study in the Scripture. He certainly was an Old Testament scholar, having studied the Old Testament. Some things he exhibits to have known since eternity past, and others exhibit the fact that in the kenosis, he has limited himself related to this omniscience. And so, the Father, in his love for him, gives him what is necessary for him to obey the Father's commands. He, not being subordinate to the Father, but subjecting himself in subordination to the Father. John 15, 9 says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. See that? As it was John's completed joy to see the bridegroom united with his bride. Jesus says, you can have my joy. These things I've spoken to you so that you will have the fullness of my joy, which is fullness of joy. Isn't that amazing? That the God-man says to those who are his disciples, you can have this joy. The joy with which I exist. These things I have spoken to you. That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. He then changes and calls it your joy. It's not only mine, it becomes yours. Well, the Father having given all things into his hand is reflected in Matthew eleven twenty seven. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. This is the Son's decreed choice to determine those to whom he would reveal the Father. Come to me, then, he says. This is not only the reality of God's sovereignty, but the call upon all men to subject themselves to God's sovereignty, where he then says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What are they laboring in, and what are they heavy laden by? Legalism. 
legalism. That's the context of that text in Matthew 11. What is he saying? He's saying to those who have attempted to work for and earn your salvation, come to me, for I am gentle and I am humble and I will not cast anyone out who comes to me with that perspective. Well, and really, then the apex of our text in verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. You know, you heard two ladies this morning speak of their belief in Jesus Christ. So the point here being the earthly lives and eternal destinies of those who obey Jesus. We've seen that in the earthly life of the one who obeys Jesus, what does he do? He sets his seal upon God, that God is true. You see it in a person's life. Progressively, he is more and more willing in humility and strength to say no to the bad decisions that have led him or her into precarious situations where he's tested almost on a daily basis with regard to whether or not he's convinced that God is true. More than a few times over the years, I've seen people over time come to the place where they have said, you know, thank you for your patience with me while I entered into something that was clearly not wise. Thank you for striving with me to the point that eventually I realized I needed to abandon this journey because it was taking me away from a pathway that proved the goodness and the kindness of God. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That belief is not simply manifest in that momentary reality that the power of the gospel is giving victory over sin and over death. It shows itself in daily life. John 6, 37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So John here speaks of point A and point B. He speaks of that moment in which that person believes, but then he speaks of the eternal reality that he will be granted eternal life. But all throughout the New Testament, in particular in the Gospels and 1 John, you see that the person who legitimately believes in the person of Jesus Christ sets his seal upon that truth. He sets his seal to the fact that God is true. And you see a consistent and increasingly passionate devotion to want to obey him. Not this bizarre and completely foreign to scripture idea that I made him the savior of my life and one day I might make him lord of my life. It's a completely pagan idea. Some refer to it as carnal Christianity, which is an absolute contradiction. Carnal Christianity. First John 5, 10, John says, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. See that? Clear enough? Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The testimony of Jesus in his heart, in his soul. It's real to him. It is now who he is. 
uh, as again the lady spoke of this morning, there is newness of life, Romans 6. Newness of life, dead to self, alive in Christ, dead to sin, alive to righteousness, imprisoned no longer to unrighteousness, but captivated by righteousness. That's what this testimony is. 1 John 5 verse 10 goes on to say, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. It's the exact opposite of setting your seal to the fact that God is true. Why? Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. This life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. How do you know that you have eternal life? How do you know that? Some would say, well, you just know that you know that you know, you know, a bunch of nonsense about knowing that you know that you know that you know that you know. And it never ends anywhere. It doesn't mean anything. It's a feeling. And you might have it one day, and the next three days you don't. And so you abandon the faith for a few hours or whatever. But on the other hand, the person that knows that he has eternal life knows that he has eternal life because he perseveres. He loves to obey the commands of God. The person who pretends to know Jesus mocks at this whole concept. He laughs at it. It's not only of disinterest to him, it's something which he believes warrants scoffing. And as we looked at in Proverbs 1, ultimately God will scoff at the scoffer who scoffs at these truths. But Jesus said, repent. Repent and believe in the gospel. The remainder of verse 36 in our text this morning says, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. See that? Jesus said, if you know me, you will obey my commands. The person who pretends to know Jesus and shows no literal interest in obeying his commands is a fraud. He's an actor. He's a hypocrite. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It's no laughing matter. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. So there, again, is a chasm between those who believe and those who do not believe, and that chasm is revealed in how one lives. The one who legitimately believes obeys the gospel. The one who does not believe but proclaims to believe does not obey the gospel. No better time than 
while we look at this text to read from Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He says, The bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow made ready on the string. And justice directs the bow to your heart and strains at the bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Thus, all you that never passed under a great change of heart by the mighty power of the Spirit of God upon your souls, all you that were never born again and made new creatures and raised from being dead in sin to a state of new and before altogether unexperienced light and life are in the hands of an angry God. However, you may have reformed your life in many things, and many have had religious affections, and may keep up a form of religion in your families and closets and in the house of God. It is nothing but his mere pleasure that keeps you from being this moment swallowed up in everlasting destruction. However unconvinced you may now be of the truth of what you hear, by and by you will be fully convinced of it. Those that are gone from being in the like circumstances with you see that it was so with them, for destruction came suddenly upon most of them when they expected nothing of it, and while they were saying, peace and safety, now they see that those things on which they depend for peace and safety were nothing but thin air and empty shadows. The God that holds you over the pit of hell much in the same way as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in yours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince, and yet it is nothing but his hands that hold you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell the last night that you were suffered to awake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep and there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose this morning, but that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given but his mercy. Yea, no other reason can be given why you do not this very moment drop down into hell. It is the wrath of God who remains on the one who does not obey Jesus. And yet, eternal life is freely granted to the one who believes in him. In Revelation 19 and 20, there is what we understand to be the marriage feast or the wedding feast between Jesus and his bride. That is not what John is specifically referring to in our text, but he is alluding to it with the illustration of the bridegroom being united with the bride and the joy found in the best man, the friend of the bridegroom, by seeing that union take place. It's been my joy more times than I can remember 
to have the privilege for one man who has prepared his daughter for his now son to be the person who brokers that exchange. When a father has done all that he can do to prepare his little girl for a godly man. What a joy, what a privilege for the church to look on and see that a man endeavors to love this bride as Christ loves the church. I mentioned last week, as for many of you, 14 years ago, I watched my bride walk down that aisle, knowing that her father had prepared her for me, having begun doing that many, many years before he even knew I existed. And in that moment, she became mine, and I became hers. And the joy that we know in marriage, as immense and truly immeasurable as it is, it does not compare to the perfect union of the perfect bridegroom who gave his life for his bride. And as you read through the book of John, you might be troubled with the question that we've often pointed out a person can be troubled by, and that is, well, what if I'm not of the elect? John Calvin's answer to that question is, you want to know if you're of the elect? Believe in Jesus Christ. Believe in Jesus Christ. Be united to Jesus Christ. Obey the gospel. Submit yourself to him. Believe that his death literally and completely atoned for the sins of every person who would ever trust in him and his death and his resurrection, which provides victory over sin and over death. Father, we rejoice in the beauty of what it is to see John, the friend of the bridegroom, who found his joy complete in seeing Jesus and his bride united. Lord, we so much want to be a local church who displays the truth of the gospel, that we would be unafraid to proclaim the truth that is in fact offensive, that for those who are not in Christ, while they may scoff and ridicule the reality, they in fact sit under the wrath of God, that it is but your grace that prevented them yesterday and the day before and the day before and even today from being cast into an eternity of torment. May today be the day, Father, that you might save the souls of those who have not believed in Jesus and yet disobey him. And Lord, we, of course, also ask that we would leave here better equipped to communicate this powerful and eternally life-altering reality that Jesus saves sinners because he is the bridegroom who loves the bride. He is the God-man of grace and his death was in fact efficient for all those who would come to him with a heavy and weary heart. It's in his name we pray.